Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, and this week, scientists have grown a new functioning liver from stem cells. We'll hear how it works, how cancers evolved to become resistant to drugs, and what will the last life forms on Earth look like? I'm betting cockroaches. We're bringing you the latest from the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in St Andrews. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, let's take a look at this week's top science news stories. And I've got a story about scientists in Japan managing to do a world first and to regrow a new liver in a dish using stem cells. This is Takanori Takeba from the Yokohama City University. It's a paper in Nature this week. And what he and his colleagues have done is to go to what are called IPS, or induced pluripotent stem cells. These are cells that were initially made by reprogramming skin cells to make them into stem cells. They then grow these cells in a dish alongside some what are called mesenchymal stem cells, which are another population of stem cells you find in the developing embryo, and some endothelial cells from the umbilical cord. These are the cells that line the blood vessels in the umbilical cord. And they also add a cocktail of growth factors. And the idea is to fool these induced pluripotent stem cells into thinking that they are back in a developing embryo in the sort of place in the body where the liver would develop. And sure enough, in the culture dish, they get these cells forming initially little balls of cells, and when they examine them, they are biochemically and genetically almost indistinguishable from what we call the liver bud. This is how the liver develops in the embryo. It grows as a bud off from the intestine, forms a mature liver tissue, which then grows to become an adult liver with time. And they then go on to do experiments with this regrown liver where they transplant these into mice so you have human livers developing in these experimental mice and they're able to demonstrate that the livers are making the right sorts of things that livers should make including the blood protein albumin they also challenge their mice with drugs that human livers break down differently to mouse livers so they can see in the blood of these mice human specific metabolites proving that this liver tissue is working And they also demonstrate in mice that have a genetically programmed liver failure, if you put these human livers into them, then you can increase the survival by about threefold in these animals. So it looks for the first time that we're in a position now where we can turn stem cells into mature adult tissues that are functional. This is really incredible stuff because the IPS, the inducible pluripotent stem cells, this is what Yamanaka won his Nobel Prize for recently. And it's relatively recent technology. He discovered the sort of magic cocktail that you put onto cells to make them go back into stem cells. So it's really fantastic to see how fast this technology is going forward into what could be really useful clinical benefits, I think. Well, there are thousands of people who need liver transplants every year. And there are thousands of people that don't get them just because there are not enough organs. And when people do have liver transplants, yes, it changes their life, but you are committed to having a lifetime on usually immunosuppressive drugs to stop you rejecting the donor organ. If you can grow your own, it's genetically tailor-made for you. So there's no rejection problem and you basically have a brand new liver. Let's hope it works. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And now a quick hop, skip and a jump from the liver into the gut. Because your guts are home to millions and millions of tiny bacteria, which make up what's called your gut microbiome. Now, most of them are what you probably think of as good bacteria. They help us to digest our food and help us to stay healthy. But there's a huge range of different bugs that can lurk in our guts. And each one of us actually has our own personal signature of gut bacteria. Now, researchers are really excited about the gut microbiome because it's thought that it can influence our immune systems and it could actually hold the key to lots and lots of different diseases, maybe even lead to new ways to treat or even prevent disease. And this week, researchers in the US, led by Jeffrey Gordon, have published a new method for identifying the different types of bacteria in the gut and they've done this through DNA sequencing. Now so far they've only used the technique to study a handful of people but the results are actually fascinating. Writing in the journal Science the team have found that the signature of the different bugs in your gut is probably remarkably stable over many many years even though on a daily basis we're exposed to a huge number of different types of bacteria. 
And interestingly, they also found that family members share quite a few types of bugs in common. And this suggests that right from an early age, you get colonised with your, your family's bugs and it stays with you as you go through your life. Well, they do say that a baby's first taste of life, assuming it's born the normal way, is a mouthful of muck. Mum's muck. Yeah, pretty much. And that's good for you because that colonises you with your mum's bugs. But actually, there's an interesting situation the scientists found where it did change. And they put a group of four rather unfortunate overweight ladies on a liquid-only low-calorie diet, so sort of diet shakes, for several weeks. And they found that their gut bacteria actually changed quite dramatically as they lost weight, with different types becoming more or less common. The scientists, even though they've only done this in a small number of people, they do think it helps to reveal a lot more about the uh, rather murky bacterial world in our bowels and provides a very powerful new method for scientists to study it. And they even think that maybe every year, if you have a personal yearly medical checkup, you should have a personal poo sample analysed as well, see what bugs you've got. Is that because they are suggesting that when you have certain diseases, this spectrum of bugs could go off kilter? Exactly. It does seem to be a reflection of health and and what's going on. And if you're broadly healthy and stay healthy, your bugs stay the same. But they can get really out of whack. So understanding at a really detailed level what sort of bugs you've got and how they change in different situations. It could be diagnostic. It could even help with treatment if you can put the right bugs back in. Thank you, Kat. Well, it is a very important area, this, because, of course... You are what you eat, quite literally, and that does in turn dictate your onward health. Now, you might have heard that 19 firefighters were killed in Arizona this week. They were tackling a ferocious wildfire that had got out of control. But how do blazes like this start, and how can we tackle them? Here's the quick fire science with Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. Wildfires may be rare in some parts of the world, like Britain, but an average of 50,000 start every year in Australia and over 4 million acres of woodland are destroyed annually in the United States. Wildfires are started after a period of hot, dry weather converts green vegetation into a fuel source for a fire to spread. All it needs then is a spark. Up to 80% of wildfires are caused by humans, either through arson or poor fire management, such as unattended campfires or even just a discarded cigarette. Natural triggers such as lightning or even sparks caused by rock falls can also start a fire. Once started, a fire spread will be affected by the weather, the wind and the amount of fuel in the surrounding area. Under the right conditions, they can move at up to 14 miles an hour. When a fire starts, we can tackle it by using aeroplanes and helicopters to drop large amounts of water or flame-retardant chemicals over the blaze to try and slow it down. On the ground, firefighters also spray the fire with water or chemicals, including phosphate fertiliser, to try and control it. Firefighters also try and reduce the amount of fuel available to the fire by clearing a fire break, removing vegetation in the fire's path. They can also reduce the available fuel by starting backfires. These are fires which burn towards the wildfire, using up any potential fuel in their path. Some people think that by stopping small-scale wildfires in their tracks quickly, we might actually be making fires more dangerous in the long term. This stops small fires clearing old material from forests, which can lead to an accumulation of fuel and a worse fire in later years. That was Kate Lamble and Hannah Critchlow there with this week's Quick Fire Science, which you can also download separately as its own podcast from our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. Now we've got some more news, and this week we're joined by science journalist Mark Peplow, who's got a story about how nuclear weapons can tell us how old things are. Hi Mark, what have you got? Yeah, this is a story about how fallout from Cold War nuclear tests can help to identify poached ivory Now, poaching of elephant tusks and rhino horns is a huge problem. It's at an all-time high, according to a report last year, which estimated about 30,000 elephants are being killed each year. But taking tusks for ivory hasn't always been illegal. A global trade ban only came into effect in 1989. So those officials that are policing the ban, when they seize an ivory artefact, they need to know when it was actually taken from the animal. And that's where the fallout comes in. It helps with a particular type of radiocarbon dating. Now, radiocarbon dating relies on measuring carbon-14 in a sample. It's a radioactive isotope with a half-life of about 5,700 years. 
Normally it's produced when energetic neutrons hit nitrogen atoms and these tend to be produced when cosmic rays smash into our atmosphere. So the idea is when a tree is alive, it absorbs carbon dioxide and it's taking in traces of carbon-14 with those molecules. When the tree dies, it stops absorbing the carbon and the radioactivity slowly dies away. So measuring where a piece of wood is on that decay curve allows you to calculate its age. And for samples less than 10,000 years, you can get an accuracy of, say, within a few decades. So how does the ivory come into this? Well, when you're normally doing carbon dating, you need various fiddle factors in there to account for human activity skewing carbon-14 concentrations. And one of the biggest ways that we've skewed carbon-14 concentrations is with nuclear bomb tests in the 1950s and 60s. It threw so many hot neutrons into the atmosphere that they all smashed into nitrogen atoms, produced loads of extra carbon-14, practically doubled the amount in the atmosphere. So you have to account for that. But the thing is, in principle, you can actually get really accurate dates on relatively recent material by doing radiocarbon dating from that bomb curve itself. So you're not looking at the overall time over thousands of years. You're just looking at that extra stuff that we put into the atmosphere in the 50s and 60s. We talked about this a few weeks ago because Kirsty Spalding, who is a researcher at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, has been using this same technique to carbon date brain cells and has proved that throughout adult life you're giving birth to new nerve cells in certain parts of the brain because she can date a brain cell to within one and a half years. This is the same idea, really, and it's the same sort of accuracy. Researchers led by Kevin Uno at Columbia University took 29 samples of hippos, teeth, elephants, tusks and hair that were collected on known dates between 1905 and 2008 in Africa, and they measured the amount of carbon-14 in them calibrated them against the detailed measurements of carbon-14 that have been made since those bomb tests, and that allowed them to date any tissues formed after the tests to within a year or so, in some cases within four months. Now, this is going to be a valuable addition, they say, to a suite of tools that people now have for wildlife forensics, such as DNA analysis, which is helping to pinpoint where and when a piece of ivory was actually taken. And it should also provide valuable evidence to short prosecutions in this area as well. Mark, thank you. Now, both of you have probably been aware of this new flu threat, you know, H7N9. Are you worried? I'm a bit worried. The last show I did, I think we talked a bit about various strains of flu, and it really did terrify me, frankly. I'm not worried because I tend to take a rather head-in-sand attitude to any new disease that's on the horizon. Having been exposed to various bugs brought home by my two daughters from (laughs) nursery and from school, I assume that if I'm going to catch something, then I'm probably going to catch it and there's not a great deal I can do about it. I'm pretty much of the same mindset, Mark, but I will say I did read this paper. It's by Zhang Fangzhu and his colleagues in Nature this week, and they have taken a very close look at H7N9. This is the new flu which was first detected in February 2013 in China and subsequently detected in every Chinese state in poultry. And unlike previous flus, which have largely devastated poultry, this does not seem to make chickens and other poultry at all sick, so you don't know they've got it. But 132 humans have picked it up so far and been severely ill and 39 people have died. So this group who are at the National Institute for Viral Disease Control and Prevention in China, they obtained samples of H7N9 and they began by testing how well it binds to the chemicals on cells in humans and in birds because most of these bird viruses, they glue themselves very well onto bird cells they don't stick very well onto human cells, and this creates what we call the species barrier. The interesting thing with these tests is that it appears to bind very tightly both to bird and to human sialic acid, the chemical on cells that flu locks onto. They then did some culture experiments where they took bits of human trachea and bits of human lung, and they grew the virus in those two sites, and it replicates equivalently well. In fact, it grows even better in the lung tissue, so there doesn't seem to be a barrier. It also very quickly infects and grows within what are called type 2 pneumocytes. These are the cells that make surfactant in the lung that keeps the airways open, stops them collapsing, which might be why the people who've got infected with this strain of the virus have had very severe lung symptoms. They then do some studies where they compare the cytokines, the inflammatory hormones that signal the immune system, 
when the virus moves in in these tissues and they find that they get the same sort of cytokine profile as when H5N1, the devastating, very, very serious, high pathogenicity bird flu, goes in through lung tissue. So the way they conclude their paper, and I'll actually read it because it's quite striking, they say in this Nature paper, although no efficient human-to-human transmission has occurred yet, Biological features we have demonstrated, such as the dual receptor binding preference, meaning birds and humans, and the high growth ability, meaning how high the turnover is in human tissue, provide the H7N9 virus with higher transmissibility from avian to human, meaning there's a high risk it will jump. And they go on to say in the last line of the paper, the threats of the H7N9 virus with pandemic potential shouldn't be underestimated. Intensive surveillance must be undertaken. You're still not worried? I confess I'm a little more worried. <laughs> I mean, there's a virologist. Um, but, I'm slightly concerned now, yeah. having, having seen this. I didn't realise uh, until, I've, obviously, they didn't, that's why it's a paper in Nature, quite how severe it is. Oh, good grief. We're all going to die, aren't we? It's, just, it's terrifying. But when it comes to talking about death and ceremonies around death for humans, and in particular the significance of flowers, it turns out that actually our ancestors were not so different from us, although they may not have been wiped out in a pandemic flu. New research from an international team led by Israeli archaeologists has now revealed the earliest human graves that show definite evidence of being scattered with flowers, and they've dated them back to between 13,700 and 11,700 years ago. Now, that's roughly around the end of the last major ice age. Now, there are older burial sites dotted around the world, in some cases from tens of thousands of years ago, but they're more commonly just for a few people and aren't thought to be places where bodies were regularly and ceremonially buried. Now, the burial sites we're talking about here are in northern Israel, next to the Mediterranean. They're known as Natufian sites, and they're the earliest cemeteries we know about so far. Researchers have been studying them for a while and they found more than 450 bodies buried across a number of these sites. And a new analysis of the graves, published in the journal PNAS from Danny Nadel and his colleagues, show they contain impressions of a range of local plants, including herbs like sage and mint, that have been made in a soft mud lining that was put into the grave. So the graves were dug and then they were lined and had flowers put into them. Now these plants flower early in the year and they're quite prettily coloured and they're very strongly smelling so they'd probably have been used at spring or early summer burials and what happens if you die in the winter the plants that they found in this case is they've degraded by that point so I think that's still a bit of a mystery. But the scientists did actually find evidence of chiselling in caves that were part of the cemetery, suggesting that burial was very important. It was a planned and it was a sophisticated ritual. Now, this research, as well as being quite an interesting story about what life might have been like back then, it does tell us a lot about how we've used flowers in our culture over many, many years. Flowers do have a lot of emotional and spiritual meanings. And at the time the Natufians lived, their world was in turmoil. The environment was changing very fast the population around them was growing very fast so the researchers think that maybe elaborate rituals like this these elaborate burials help to bring social groups together and help to strengthen their society and very much like they still do for us modern humans today thank you cat and if you'd like to follow up on that and on any of the other stories we've covered this week they're all on our website at nakedscientist.com news together with the references so that you can go and check out the original published paper too This is The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and Chris Smith. Now, cancer researchers and doctors all over the world are getting increasingly excited about the new era of molecular therapies designed to target specific gene faults in tumours. But while these drugs tend to show impressive results, their effectiveness soon wanes and the cancer comes back after a number of months or years as it evolves resistance to the therapy. Now, Martin Novak is Professor of Mathematics and Biology at Harvard University. He and his team have been using mathematical models of tumour evolution to try and understand why this happens, and their results could change the way that these new treatments are used. The initial effect of the drug is often amazing, and doctors uh, see uh, decline in advanced cancers to an extent that they have never witnessed before in in any situation. So this is extremely promising. But many of these therapies, exactly as you said, they are short-lived. And the reason is because the cancer cells uh, develop resistance. They kind of evolve, don't they, and and change to escape the drug? Yes, exactly. So we are witnessing here an evolutionary process on a pretty fast timescale. 
And here's also where the mathematics comes in, because uh, the mathematics of biology is uh, very developed to understand um, evolution. So evolutionary dynamics can be described with exact mathematical equations. We can describe how populations get resistance, get mutations, and then how mutations respond to selection pressure. This is what we're doing for cancer here. How do you go about starting to model what seems like such a complex biological process? The, fir the first question would be somehow an estimate of how big uh, the population of cancer cells in the body is. So if we look at a particular lesion of a certain size, then very often we are confronted with approximately one billion cancer cells. And then we give the treatment and the observations uh, suggest that there are single point mutations that can actually confer resistance to the treatment. So the first question that would arise is, at the time you start treatment, are the resistant mutations already present in the patient? Or do the resistant mutations emerge once therapy has started. So that would be single changes to a gene that would, would make the cells resistant to a treatment or not, to find out whether they're there at the start or whether they kind of come on later. Yes, that's exactly right. So, and so now the question is, suppose there are a number of point mutations in the oncogene that can do this, between, say, 1 and 10 or so. Uh, the point mutation rate is fairly well known, approximately 10 to the minus 9 per base per cell division. So given this point mutation rate, given the population size, we can fairly accurately estimate the probability that the resistant cells are already there before you start treatment. So by doing some maths, you, you can kind of figure out the rate at which these cells are mutating and evolving and kind of track back to work out whether they were there at the start. Yes, exactly. So if you are, if you are telling me basically there are 10 possible point mutations the population size is 10 to the 9, the point mutation is 10 to the minus 9, that with very high probability, we can conclude that the resistant mutations are already there by the time the doctor starts the treatment. So maybe one in a million cells has the resistant mutation, and this is below clinical detection. So you, you, if you examine the cancer, you would conclude that there's no resistant cell present because the frequency is so small. But then you start treatment, and within approximately... 20 to 30 weeks, we observed that the treatment fails. And if you now look um, and analyze the genetic composition of the oncogene, you will find that resistant mutations have emerged. This seems to me to be incredibly significant for treatment because at the moment with these targeted treatments, we tend to test one at a time. So you, you do an analysis of a patient's tumor, you say, okay, you need this drug, and then you give it to them for a bit, it works, and then it fails, and then you try another one. What conclusions can you draw from your research about how we should use these drugs now? So what we have done in this paper is really to ask the question, suppose uh, that you are in a situation where you have two targeted therapies against the same cancer, and if we now use two therapies at the same time, then what is the probability that... Uh, that uh, the cancer is now cured. This really depends on whether or not there exist single-point mutations in the genome that give simultaneous resistance to both drugs. So if you're in a situation where there is even only a single-point mutation in the whole genome that confers resistance to both drugs at the same time, the situation is again very gloomy and the chances for curing patients with this type of combination therapy are fairly small. So what you really need to design are drugs that work against the same cancer, and moreover, there's not a single point mutation in the genome that gives rise to resistance to both drugs at the same time. And then the cancer has to respond by developing at least two-point mutations, one that gives resistance for drug A, one for drug B, and that is uh, not so easy for the cancer. Cancer cells only have a, a limited range of ways they can get around these drugs. They're not completely immortal. So you would think that eventually if we had enough targeted drugs, we would be able to have enough ways to hit cancer so it couldn't get around uh, the treatment. Yes, this would be the idea, but always keep in mind it doesn't matter how many drugs you have if the cancer cell has a mechanism to give resistance to all those drugs simultaneously. So you really must develop uh, 
drugs that do not have resistance mutations in common. And here the surprising observation of our current study is that a single point mutation in the genome that would give you resistance to both drugs would defeat the treatment. The very important uh, aspect is that whatever combination therapy you use, do not use it sequentially. Because um, to use first one drug and then wait until it fails and then another drug is a certain recipe for complete treatment failure. To use two drugs simultaneously as opposed to sequentially is a much better um, idea. And this is rare in the clinical practice of cancer treatment at the moment. How quickly do you think you can get this message out to people who are treating cancer patients and, for example, running clinical trials of these new targeted drugs? It seems like an incredibly important thing for doctors to know about. Yes, I think it can happen quickly. Um, I was involved in a similar study in 1995 um, for HIV virus, and there we actually we were able to show that single drug therapy of the HIV virus gives rise to resist to complete resistance in approximately four weeks, uh, depending on the drug, because there's a very rapid turnover of the virus, and this moved the field very quickly. In fact, within a year, to uh, combination therapy. I mean, for me, it's fascinating uh, to see and to hope uh, that that mathematics can really help uh, to inform. Um, experimental scientists and and doctors um, in the clinic. And so my hope would be that um, in a few decades from now, our understanding of cancer will be engineer-like. And then we can really use an engineering-like approach to actually design and use the optimum therapies and prevent many, many um, people from dying from cancer. That was Martin Novak from Harvard University, and he published that work this week in the journal eLife. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Katani and with me, Chris Smith. It's time for our mailbox now, and Joshua from Doncaster emailed to say, Hello, Chris. Hello. Uh, I just heard the new mailbox feature, and I thought this would be a great time to say thank you for entertaining his train journeys to and from school. So, uh, thank you, Joshua. Thanks very much. Yeah. It's good to know that there are young people, as well as crusty old people like me, listening to this, and Mark as well, including Mark. <laughs> well, you be crusty. I'm not crusty at all. We've also got an email here from Fred Richardson, an expat from Manchester, apparently living in the Northern Territories, and he's got a question for us. He says, it happens occasionally that I get fleas brought into the house via a cat. Invariably, sometimes they end up in my woolen hat. <laughs> this is science. <laughs> so, uh, so the cat brings fleas in and they make and a beeline for this for guy's hat. hat. Yep, absolutely. And he says he's tried to microwave them away <laughs> with no luck. So what size should an insect be for a microwave to boil it. He's wet the bobcat and microwaved it, but it more or less destroyed his hat, and I'm guessing you can't microwave the cat. So is there some kind of safe mechanism that he could put his hat in that would somehow guide the microwaves around to it microwave the fleas? I suppose that the reason the fleas escape the microwave, I mean, Mark, you're the physicist, but I'll give you my theory, is that the wavelength of the waves in a microwave oven is about 12 centimetres. So there's quite a big distance, six centimetres or so, between the peaks and the troughs where the energy is most intense. In other words, the displacement is greatest and therefore the heating effect is greatest. And if you're something tiny like a flea, you can probably fit quite snugly into the gaps where there are fewer microwaves and therefore you're not going to get cooked so well and you can also move out the way. This is why with a microwave you have to kind of keep stirring it and it has to go round and, and there's a lot of conduction of heat going on in the water in your food. It sounds right to me, Chris, if you have these hot spots within a microwave that are a few centimetres apart, there's plenty of room for fleas to slip in between those, really, and survive. Dave did an experiment about six, nine months ago on The Naked Scientist where we wanted to see whether microwaving your dishcloth was a good way to sterilise it or clean it rather than have to boil it up on the hob. And we found that actually before it gets clean, it just catches fire because the salts that are in the cloth, owing to having cleaned up dirty surfaces, actually end up raising the boiling point of the water there to a very high temperature. And they also encourage a very high current to flow in that region. And so it does get very, very hot. So I suspect that maybe sweat on the cap is doing the same thing and making the cap get hotter before the fleas mm. do and therefore the cap gets cooked into submission before the flea has a chance to get a deathly dose of microwaves. I have to wonder why you would choose to use your microwave to get rid of fleas. Is there no flea powder available? I think the only way is it would be if you Turn immersed... Turntable then. 
yeah, turntable and maybe immerse yeah. the whole hat plus fleas in water. I, I think that's right, Cat, actually. Put the whole lot in a bowl of water and microwave it, and if you heat it up enough, that will kill the fleas. You'll, you'll boil the little bears. Yeah. And our final question we've got from Sean Peterson, who says, what would a propeller-drived plane do in space? He recently watched a Doctor Who episode, which isn't real, I have to say. Oh, and isn't uh, it? Oh, no, it's not. I'm and disappointed. Uh, <laughs> I am too. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Uh, but at one point, they send a World War II aircraft into space. And his question is, what would be the effect on an aircraft like that if you turned on a high-powered propeller in zero-g? What do you reckon? So if you've got a Spitfire with one prop at the front, let's get over the the idea that you actually need air, oxygen, to burn the fuel to make the engine go around. That aside, as soon as you start the propeller going around one way, the plane itself is going to start turning the opposite way. There's going to be this reverse reaction to it. Because there's no air for it to push against. Yeah, there's no air for the propeller to push against. You might get a bit of forward motion from exhaust coming Mm. from the engine, pushing out towards the back. But overall, I think the main motion is going to be that the plane is going to start going round in the opposite direction to the prop. Dizzying ride, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's going to make you sick. Mark, thank you very much. And if you'd like to send us a question, or indeed if you would like to contribute to any of the questions we've already answered, then please send them in. We love hearing from you. Chris at thenakedscientist.com is the email address. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can go on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist. Cat. Well, all that talk of space and flying around actually leads us very nicely onto our main topic of the week because we sent our resident naked astronomer, Dominic Ford, to the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in St Andrews, Scotland. Yes, this week I've been here in the sunny seaside resort of St Andrews in Scotland at the biggest annual gathering of astronomers in the UK, the National Astronomy Meeting. Organised by the Royal Astronomical Society, NAM as it's known, brings together both professional astronomers and amateur observers. All week, I've been lucky enough to be able to sit in on discussions of everything from the furthest depths of the universe to the discovery of planets orbiting around nearby stars. On Monday, I caught up with the president of the Royal Astronomical Society, Professor David Southwood, and asked him what role the society still has to play. Well, it's the Professional Society of Astronomers, founded by William Herschel in 1820. It really looks after the professional standards of astronomers, but increasingly looks after making the general public aware of how important astronomy is to our nation as a whole. We need to tell people why doing astronomy is important, not just in some intellectual sense, It's important for our society in innovation, in building technologies that can be used elsewhere. Your mobile phone has technology in it that was developed originally for interplanetary communications. You use GPS possibly to find where you are today. Well, that came out of the International Geophysical Year back in 1957, Creative uses of GPS are still coming and advances in GPS still rely on an interface with astronomy. And uh, just as astronomy used to be used by sailors without them needing to know what stars were but needing to know how the stars moved, frankly, astronomy is behind an awful lot of things that we take for granted like the sailors did 500 years ago. Professor David Southwood the Royal Astronomical Society's president. As David just mentioned, the impact of astronomy can be felt across a huge range of scientific fields. But there are some questions which has come round time and again, and of course one that everyone wants to know the answer to is whether there might be life on other planets. Dracomali James from the University of St Andrews is using models of the sun to work out what the last living life forms on Earth might look like. As he explains... This could give us an insight into what life may look like on other planets as well. I started by asking him how the sun's light will affect the Earth in the future. As the sun ages, it sort of starts burning through its reserve of fuel. And as that happens, the sort of core of the sun contracts. And it, because it gets contracted, it heats up more and the reaction speeds up. And so the net result is you get a more luminous star, a hotter and brighter sun. And then this has knock-on effects for the planets orbiting it, including our planet. So the Earth is going to heat up as the sun throws out more energy towards it. So surface temperatures start increasing. 
So over the next billion years or so, you're going up in luminosity by about 0.1 of the current value. But then once we get to the end of that billion years, we get to a tipping point where rapid ocean evaporation sets in. And because water vapor is a greenhouse gas, this sets in motion as a runaway greenhouse effect. And then temperatures really rapidly start climbing. The oceans really start evaporating. And over a further billion years from that, we lose all the water vapor from the atmosphere to space. And then we're left with a very dry planet. So how do you go about modelling the effect that an increase in the sun's luminosity has on the climate of the Earth? So because of the timescales that we're looking at, it almost doesn't pay to have a very complex model in place. So we, we have a very simple surface temperature climate model, which takes into account greenhouse gas values and the changing luminosity of the sun. So it puts all these together and calculates the temperature at different points over the surface of the Earth, so different points in latitude and just gives a rough idea of the temperatures or average temperatures in these particular zones. And then we sort of extrapolate that upwards as well and work out the temperature profile upwards in the atmosphere, which gives us an idea of temperature change with altitude as well. And then we can start using those temperatures to work out when we start losing liquid water in certain habitats and what kind of microbes could and could not live there. Now, I know you've been researching what impact that will have on the sorts of life forms we see on Earth. Are we going to go back to an era like when the dinosaurs were around, when the Earth is a warmer place with more cold-blooded creatures, do you think? Something like that is possible within the very early stages before we get this rapid ocean evaporation taking place. So the, the other effects in terms of life that's coming into play is the increase in silicate weathering. So if you have more water vapour in the atmosphere, you have more rain and rain draws down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere when it interacts with silicate rocks and minerals in the surface. And so if you've got more rain, you're taking away more carbon dioxide. Take away carbon dioxide, it's not really a good situation for plants. So once we start lowering carbon dioxide levels, plants start to die off, and the animals that depend on the plants also start dying off. And the most vulnerable animals are also the ones that have most recently evolved, so the larger mammals and things like that will be probably the first to go. And so colder-blooded reptiles would have a better chance of surviving for a little bit longer, but it's a very short window of time. So plants and animals would all be on a rapid decline into extinction. So if you lose the plants and you lose the animals, does that mean you're just left with bacteria and fungi? Yes, you'd end up with, at first, probably a fairly diverse microbial world similar to the early earth in a way so the early earth was solely inhabited by microbes for a good couple of billion years and it would be a return to that but then because conditions become more extreme temperatures increase only the really hardy extremophile microbes will, will be the ones that can really survive and there's likely there'll be similarities between these and the sort of extremophiles we see on earth today in places like yellowstone and other sort of volcanic springs and things like that but it's also thought that these were the very first life forms to evolve. So the early Earth was a very hot, hostile environment. And so it's thought that when life first emerged, it emerged to fit these conditions. So these kind of microbes were possibly the first microbes on Earth, and it's possible they'll be the last as well. I guess the search for life on Mars has, in recent years, become focused on what might be beneath its surface, where it's thought there might be a more protected environment. Would a similar thing happen on the Earth, that if the sun was getting warmer, then life might thrive better beneath the surface? It's definitely possible. We, because we lose the plants and we lose oxygen, we also lose ozone, which forms a protective layer around the atmosphere that sort of protects life from UV radiation. So you'd expect to see a movement underground just for extra UV protection. The situation gets a bit complicated because the general trend, if you were to look at the temperature profile of the crust of the Earth, as you go deeper down, temperature goes up. So if you've got very hot temperatures on the surface, you'd get very hot temperatures underground as well. And so that if it's too hot for life on the surface, it'll be too hot beneath the ground. But this is just a general trend. And you see on Earth today, I think the, the deepest they've found life is something like five kilometres down. And it depends on the particular rock type. So it's very hard to put a final lifetime on life underground to the point where life could actually have its final, final refuge underground. But I guess it's very timely because we're discovering large numbers of extrasolar planets and it's very interesting to think about whether those might have life on them. One of the um, reasons we started doing this work is because 
if you were to look at an Earth-like planet, so imagine an exact copy of the Earth uh, around another star, and we were to take a snapshot of this in time, either in its early lifetime when life first started or in the far future when the conditions are not very good for quite a lot of life, you're more likely to come across microbial life on the surface than you are the sort of rich, diverse biosphere that we've got today. So it's very useful to have an idea of what kind of telltale signatures this sort of microbial world would leave behind that's different to the signatures that we'd see from life as we know it on Earth today. So it sort of helps in the search for life in different scenarios. Drac O'Malley James from the University of St Andrews. Before we can ask what life might look like on planets orbiting other stars, as Drac's doing, we first need to find those planets in the first place. This involves pointing our telescope at thousands of stars to find the tiny fraction that show evidence of planets circling around them. This type of huge-scale project is becoming widespread in astronomy, bringing together vast numbers of researchers and often costing hundreds of millions of pounds. Some people have dubbed these projects mega-surveys, and I asked Professor Andy Lawrence from the University of Edinburgh what the term means. Well, a survey is any systematic collection of data over a large piece of sky, and a mega-survey is just a very big survey. There are good reasons to pre-collect data, as opposed to letting each astronomer go and look at the piece of sky they want to, the individual object they want to. That kind of targeted science will still go on, but there's been a long tradition in astronomy of systematically surveying the sky, putting the data in an enormous database, and then letting astronomers get the archive, the databases, to do their science. So why are astronomers suddenly so interested in these very big data sets? Is it because we're tackling difficult problems that need very large amounts of data? There certainly are examples. This happens repeatedly, but it's not new. There's, there's always been big things. IRAS, recently WISE, you know, the first mid-infrared survey. So there's been a long tradition. But there are some problems where you just need extremely large amounts of data. It can be because the other thing you're studying is physically big on the sky, like making a map of the Milky Way, looking at its structure. Sometimes it's because you simply need extremely large numbers of objects. So the interesting modern example is weak lensing, trying to map out where the dark matter is by looking at distortions of galaxies caused by the light moving through the ripples of space-time caused by the, the dark matter. Any one galaxy, this distortion is a tiny effect. But if you look in lots and lots of galaxies and see if it's systematically in the same direction in, in one piece of sky, then you can figure out what's going on with the dark matter. And then to make a map of the dark matter and look at its structure, you need to repeat that in lots of positions on the sky. So to do that, you need millions and millions of galaxies. You need to beat down the noise to get an accurate measurement. And to see it at all, you just need lots and lots and lots of, of galaxies. I guess one factor has been that we've only recently had the computers that can process these huge volumes of data. That's true. In fact, the ambition of surveys and the capability of our computers are always kind of leapfrogging each other. So I think that's always been true, but certainly at the moment, the uh, new things we're contemplating need some pretty serious processing power. The big hope for lensing is the Euclid space mission, which should be launched hopefully about 2019. It'll make measurements of these distortions of galaxies from space, which will be very accurate. But processing the data to eke out the information is going to be very hard work. The new thing that's exciting people is looking at the sky repeatedly to see things that change. That's starting right now on a, a small scale, very bright things, things like Super Wasp looking for exoplanet transits and so on. At a much deeper level, PANSTARS, which I'm working on, is, is very exciting. Looking for a supernovae, for quasars doing strange things. So you need to cover the sky repeatedly. And you're looking for very rare things. So you need to, for instance, to look at the sort of tidal disruption events that I'm looking for in the nuclei of galaxies. They're very rare. Happens in one galaxy out of every 100,000 or maybe a million per year. So you've got to look at millions of galaxies repeatedly because one of them will go bang. It's the classic needle in a haystack problem. I guess this has been quite a big societal change in astronomy in that it takes a lot of telescope time to do these big surveys. So you have these very big collaborations of people working on them. You do, and people often worry that astronomy is becoming more like particle physics. It's all being done by giant collaborations and 
you, know, you have to do what the prof tells you and, and so on. But for me, part of the joy of surveys is actually that, although we, we do have big projects, and you know, Planck was the classic example recently, with a survey you can recreate the sort of anarchic, individualistic approach that astronomers love. Because you get a professional team together to collect the data, make the database, make the query interface, and so on. And once you've done all that, then any smart postdoc can just get in there, have a smart idea, search through the data, find something new and interesting. So it doesn't mean that astronomy has to be done in kind of large, faceless, Stalinist teams, as it were, <laughs> and we can keep our anarchic approach. So for me, that's very much a part of why surveys are important. So we're seeing some very large products at the moment, like the European Extremely Large Telescope and the Square Kilometre Array. But we also do see some smaller projects like SuperWASP, which I think was really built on a shoestring. I think we're very likely to keep a mix of the big and small, but there is an inexorable pressure towards bigger things, just because we're always wanting to collect more and more data to look at fainter and fainter objects. On the other hand, there's always new ideas that are usually first explored with a relatively modest facility. So I think we'll have both, but there will be more and more big, big science. Professor Andy Lawrence from the University of Edinburgh. One of the examples that Andy mentioned was weak lensing surveys, which can be used to look for dark matter. To find out more, I asked Andy's colleague Catherine Haymans just how we know that the mysterious dark matter exists. So let's think about our own Milky Way galaxy. So we've got stars that are spinning round in our own Milky Way galaxy. And you can look how fast they're moving round. And you can do this in lots of galaxies as well. Now, if you imagine a, a piece of string and a ball on the end of a piece of string, you can swing that ball around. Now, the faster you swing that ball around, the tighter you've got to hold on to the string. OK, what does this mean for our galaxy? Well, the ball is now your stars. And there's no string that's holding the stars as they go round our galaxy. It's gravity. You get lots of gravity if you've got lots of mass. And we can see how fast the stars are moving around. We can roughly count how many stars there are in a galaxy. We know roughly how much a star weighs. And there just simply isn't enough gravity in our galaxy to keep those stars going round. They're just moving too fast. And so that means there must be extra mass there, which we call dark matter, to keep those stars going round. If there wasn't a big halo of dark matter around our own Milky Way galaxy, all the stars would just simply fly out into the universe. Now, I know you're using a technique called weak gravitational lensing to probe dark matter. How does that work? Einstein had a wonderful theory of general relativity that told us that mass bends space and time. Now, what that means is that if we look at light from the very distant universe, as it comes towards us on Earth, it doesn't travel in straight lines. It gets bent by gravitational potential of the matter. So we've got lots of dark matter in between us and the distant universe. The light's coming towards us from the distant universe. It gets bent and distorted by the dark matter. And what that does is it leaves an imprint on the images of very distant galaxies. You can imagine it like dark matter just leaving a signature on images of the distant universe. I was here. What it looks like to us on Earth is it looks like the galaxies are kind of lining up with each other. And so that's the signature that we look for. And when we see lots of galaxies all lining up with each other, what we infer is that there's been some dark matter in between us and them that's bent the light to make it look like these galaxies are lining up. And we can use this to tell us where the dark matter is and how much of it there is. And that's the technique that we've used to map out dark matter on very, very large scales in our universe. So with the idea here that if these galaxies are all lining up in the same orientation there's got to be either some cosmic conspiracy, which means those galaxies are all in the same orientation, or there's some physics that's making them look that way. So there is an effect that if you have two galaxies that are actually physically close to each other in the universe, when they form, they will tend to line up with each other. And we have to account for that as well. But what we do is we look at galaxies that, even though they look like they're close to each other on the sky, they're actually physically very distant and then we know that they can't possibly know about each other, so they can't possibly be lined up with each other. So if we see an alignment, we know it has to have been caused by some intervening dark matter in between us and those galaxies. Dark matter's been in cosmology for, what, must be about 80 years since the work of Fritz Wicke. Mm -hmm. This must be quite a well-tested theory by now. 
It is a very well-tested theory and there is lots of evidence out there to show that there is dark matter in our universe. Some would say an overwhelming body of evidence supporting this theory of dark matter. The question is now, what on earth is it? So we know that it's weakly interacting, we know that it's cold, but nobody has detected the particle yet. So there have been some exciting new developments in the UK recently where a new consortium of all of the particle physicists who are involved in this type of research have joined together to support a new project called the Lux Zeppelin Detector. This is going to be nine tonnes of xenon deep under the ground, I believe in South Dakota, 5,000 feet underground. And the hope is that one of these weakly interacting matter particles will collide with a nuclei in this big detector. Some electrons will be emitted and they'll be detected. That's the hope that we'll actually be able to detect one of these particles and construction on that project begins next year. So that's what they call astroparticle physics, where you're looking for the particle which makes up this mass that we can't see, this dark matter. Exactly. So as astronomers, we work on mapping the dark matter and using simulations of what the dark matter particle might be to predict what our observations should look like. And at the moment, this theory of the cold dark matter particle, the simulations that we have of the universe with that theory match our observations. Now we know that we've observed this type of dark matter, can we actually go and detect it? And it's really, really tough. As astronomers, we detect it through its gravitational effects. The particle physicists are trying to detect it through an actual reaction, which is really challenging to do. And I guess on the astronomy side, are you looking to push these weak lensing surveys further? Exactly. So uh, we've just finished a big project called the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope Lensing Survey. So you can check it out on www.cfhtlens.org and you can see all of the exciting results that we've done with that survey, mapping out dark matter on the largest scales ever seen before. And now we're moving on to a new project. It's a European Southern Observatory project called the Killer Degree Survey, or KIDS. And that's going to be 10 times larger than the current project that we've worked on. And that's going to allow us to map out even more dark matter and see how dark matter is affecting the galaxies in our universe. We believe that dark matter dictates where and when the galaxies form, but we want to understand more about that. Catherine Haymans from the University of Edinburgh. Most of the delegates at the National Astronomy Meeting are professional researchers based at the country's universities and observatories. But there are also a few amateur astronomers here too. Tom Bowles holds the world record having Tom Bowles holds the world record for having personally discovered more supernovae than any other individual in history, all from his home in Codnam in darkest Suffolk. I asked him how he feels about holding the record. I don't know if that should be a scientific challenge or not. I think it's, some of it's down to a sheer stubbornness and sort of just keeping repeating doing the same thing all the time. Yes, I've discovered 152 supernovae to date, and I hope that some of those have been used to somebody at some time. I know it's certainly generated a lot of papers, a couple of them I've co-authored myself. But yeah, they, they have been used to perhaps calibrate bigger surveys and more important work further along the field. How do you go about hunting for supernovae? Well, you just keep looking. You just take hundreds and thousands of pictures and um, you compare those with archived images that you have on your hard drive or your computer and you just do it over and over and over again. It sounds boring, but it isn't because obviously, you know, every galaxy is different. The shape of every galaxy is unique. And when you see the same old friends coming around year after year after year, it, it does stimulate you. And, and that's partly where the motivation comes from. If it was only discoveries that motivated you, you'd give up very, very quickly. You'd just get bored. I guess it takes me roughly 4,000 images for every discovery I make. So that works about 120 hours work at the computer with the telescopes to get one discovery. So consider the number of clear nights we get in the UK, that, that wouldn't last very long. So are you working down a list of nearby galaxies which are close enough that a supernova in those galaxies would be bright enough for you to see? Yes, that's basically the idea. Although I don't differentiate between, say, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is I can see a bit further away than the type 2s because they're optically brighter. But I just, at the end of the day, I, I just go out for as far as I hope to see supernova and galaxies. And at the moment, I've got just over 12,000 galaxies on my list. So over the period of 12 months, I get round the whole sky and I just keep imaging the same galaxies over and over again until you know, I get a result. And I guess you have turned this into quite an industry. Is it three telescopes you've got? I've got three telescopes, yeah. And I run sort of typically 60-second integrations using 
rather sophisticated CCDs. I use back-luminated cool CCDs now. So I've got sort of research-grade cameras. Uh, and I get about 135 images an hour. So if you start building those up over the winter months, that leaves you with several thousand images to check overnight. So actually taking the images is the easy bit. Checking them and eliminating them for supernova suspects is a hard bit. I'd imagine that must drive you insane, looking at these thousands of images trying to find supernova candidates. Well, that's the fun bit, isn't it? I mean, there's no point taking the image if you don't look at them. I'll tell you what's really funny. I've been doing it now for 15, 16 years, and I can actually spot proper motions in some of the, the images, you know, between the, the archive images I've got and the fresh images I've taken in any night. You know, if you look at it, and you, the unsuspecting eye might think you've discovered an asteroid in there, but it's actually a star that's jumped across there about half an hour minute. And it's, it's quite motivation to see how the sky changes over a very long period as well. You're planning to keep up this work, or is the competition from surveys like PanStar starting to become too much? Well, it's not so much PanStars, but, you know, they put this big CCD camera on the Schmidt telescope, the 48-inch Schmidt, and that is really cleaning up the skies quite well. So, yeah, the big surveys are becoming a big challenge. I've still got the, the edge, I think, because I'm a, perhaps a little bit more flexible in them and I can move around the sky a lot easier. How long that lasts for, I don't know, but I'll keep doing it until the results dry up. But it's getting tougher amateur astronomer Tom Bowles. That's all from NAM, but if you want to hear more from the conference, I've been making special daily episodes of the Naked Astronomy podcast, which you can find online at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Thanks to Dominic Ford reporting there from the National Astronomy Meeting in St Andrews up in Scotland. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and you're on RN. And finally, Hannah is shooting for the stars in our question of the week. This week, we depressurise pigeons in an attempt to answer this. This is Ahmed. If an astronaut were to release their helmet uh, while they're outside on their spacewalks, would that astronaut first freeze due to the lack of heat or explode due to the lack of air pressure? In the vacuum of space where it's low pressure, water boils at a lower temperature. It expands, creating gas, and this could possibly cause you to explode or If you're sitting in the Earth's orbit, you'll eventually end up at about 4 degrees Celsius in the Sun. If you're in between galaxies, however, with no stars or hot sun around you, you'll end up about minus 270 degrees Celsius. So let's firstly do an experiment to find out what would happen to our blood in space. I visited Dave Ansell, putting a glass of water as a substitute for blood into a pressure chamber to recreate the low pressure in space. So we're now at about a quarter of atmospheric pressure and you can see small bubbles starting to form. The vacuum chamber is actually misting up with all of the water that's evaporating from the tumbler and, uh, and the water's then condensing on the cooling tubes. Oh, wow, there's just been an explosion, I think. A biggish um, bubble coming up, which is sprayed water. So this is what would happen if you had a glass of blood in space. It would boil. But a human isn't a glass of blood. Your blood is surrounded by blood vessels and tissue. So whether that means the blood will boil is another question. So how can we test that? I'm not putting myself in the vacuum chamber. As a better model of a person being exposed to vacuum, I have a nice succulent oven-ready pigeon. I've now put that in the vacuum chamber. Oh, Oh. I can see the skin popping. There seems to be um, like kind of air bubbles coming out of the skin. The skin is actually being lifted slightly by water, vapour, even gases trapped underneath it. And they're expanding as the pressure outside it is reducing and it's lifting some of the skin off. And that might rupture some blood vessels near the surface. But the skin itself is staying one solid piece. It's not really exploding. A pigeon isn't a perfect model for a human, as it's been mostly bled and it's had its head cut off and the skin damaged by plucking. But these results do seem to suggest that our circulation and tissue can, to a large degree, withstand the low pressure of space. Dave also adds... Various experiments have been done on this, deliberately and less deliberately. Various animals have been exposed to vacuum and they don't explode. They have various tissue damage and possibly their eardrums will get damaged if the um, depressurisation is very quick, but their body is plenty strong enough to contain that pressure. And in fact, even a person has been accidentally exposed to a vacuum and he survived the experience. So we'd probably asphyxiate and dry out rather than explode, 
and I'll be having a slightly desiccated roast pigeon for my supper this evening, I think. That topic digested, we next make a movement to ponder a question in from an anonymous listener. Can we produce power from poo? We produce loads of the stuff, and it must still have some good stuff in it. So surely scientists can delve away at it to make some electricity? Can we lay cables courtesy of the colon? Let us know what you think. Hannah Critchlow. And that's it for this week. Thank you to all of our guests from the National Astronomy Meeting. Thanks for Kat Arney and Mark Peplow for joining in this week. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next time will also be stellar, I must say, because we'll be looking at how we can harness the sun's energy but down here on Earth. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>